invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 1. As we have progressed our way through the year in our campus church, I have tried to make Sunday morning other than another class. I have not intended it to be a teaching time or a corrective time or any such thing, but a time in which we put all of those other things, good and right as they are, in their rightful place to meet with the Lord, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I don't think, and I'm just being very honest, I don't think that's a very common practice in our evangelical world. I think we are oftentimes more concerned about getting something, learning something, coming away with a feeling or new information or new challenge or something of that sort. We've tried to put all of that in its rightful place, but at the same time to make worship worship, where we at heart level express our adoration for the Lord and his work, his person, and all of the wonders of what he has been doing. This morning what I'd like to do is just step back from all of those things that have been occupying our attention in the past week with exams and doing so many things of getting our rooms organized and packing up and all of that sort of kind of pain in the neck stuff. And let's reflect a little bit on the love of God that we've been singing about throughout this meeting. In chapter 5 and verse 1, it it begins, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these words that we have just read, that we are justified by faith, nothing more and yet nothing less. We thank you that we have been declared to be righteous, not through any merit or achievement on ours, on our part, but by your grace alone. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel and yet for the magnitude of the work that you are engineering in us as you bring us through time and prepare us to live and reign with Christ millennially and then to be with him throughout the ages of eternity. Help us this morning to be quiet in our soul. Help us to focus on something of your love to us and an appropriate response on our part. May you capture our heart's affections. 
and give us a holy discontent with lukewarmness, with just maintaining a status quo or a culturally accepted standard of normality. Help us to be those who draw closer to the one whose mouth is most sweet, who does all things well, and the one to whom we have come to meet this morning. For we pray in his name. Amen. When our time on earth is done, what will really be of importance will not be the size of a bank account, the achievements, the things that we might claim for fame, but what will be important then for those that are left behind and for us as we face the wonders of eternity will be our love. And I think you would agree with me that we're living in a world that that really doesn't understand what love, genuine love, really is. We associate that with a feeling. We associate that with a lot of things that, that really have little or nothing to do with the love of God. And I'd like us to consider this morning what love really is. And I'd like to pose the question, love, what is it? The dictionary defines it as a strong affection. Henry Drummond made the statement one time that love is the greatest thing in all the world. Some years ago, J. Paul Getty made the statement that he would give his millions for one successful marriage. He'd been through a series of unhappy marriages. How would we, how would you, how would I define what love really is? Christian love is a manifestation of God's love flowing through a redeemed human heart. It's a manifestation of God's love flowing through a saved human heart. For the Christian, our love, our responsiveness to God, and our love on a human level, on an assembly, a fellowship of God's people level, is really an answer to the prayer of Jesus' high priestly utterance in John 17 in verse 26 that reads, where Jesus prayed that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. That's setting the bar pretty high. That the same love that God the Father has for his Son would be the quality of love in us and that it would flow through the vehicle of our lives. Lewis Berry Schaefer made the statement, to have a heart that feels the compassion of God is to drink the wine of heaven. And that's not an intoxicating wine. To feel the compassion of God's love is to drink the wine of heaven. Is that the kind of love that beats in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships? It can be, and it should be. Some time ago, I I was reading a book that I borrowed. Augustine made the statement, and this is not hermeneutics class, but he said that love, God's love, is the key to interpreting the Scriptures. And that's a true statement. We may not agree with everything that he said, but that was a true statement. And I say that partly because that's echoed in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10 where God makes the statement, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, 
Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In part, it was love that produced creation. In part, it was love that produced Calvary, God's love for even undeserving creatures, God knowing, of course, the end from the beginning. To love the Lord and to love others is a positive response to a command. We are commanded to do that. To do otherwise really constitutes disobedience. And that's why we've said previously on other Sundays that love and the ability and the will to love is an act of the will that says, yes, by the grace of God, I will be loving. I will be what God wants me to be. I'd like you to turn just for a moment. Keep your finger in Romans 5, but just go over to 1 Corinthians 13 for a moment. Sometimes this is referred to as the love chapter, and it is. But I see it as a balancing chapter with regard to the use of spiritual gifts. And there the inspired words are these. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never fails. That's not the love that we come born with, but that's God's love and his quality of love that is within us. And we might ask ourselves at this point, how do I define love? How do my words, my thoughts, my actions, my relationships define love? Could somebody observe your life or mine and draw an equal sign and say, this equals love? It's a serious question, and it's one that the world about us does answer, wittingly or otherwise, on a regular basis. Our quality of life is really determined by the quality of our loving relationships. Just think about that for a moment. The quality of your life and mine is defined by the quality of loving relationships, humanly speaking, and then, of course, towards the Lord. And I think you would agree with me that in our world today, in our homes, in the churches, in the marriages, in the relationships of God's people, there is a tremendous need for a holy, godly love amongst the people of God. I don't think anybody today who is remotely acquainted with reality would challenge that, that statement. It is love that defines a Christian as a Christian. As Corey shared from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, to love the Lord defines a Christian. It's not simply somebody who has gone through 
all of the procedures and so on, who knows when to sit and stand and knows the answers to given questions, but somebody who loves the Lord Jesus is a Christian. And the opposite is true as well. Now, I'd like to break down my thoughts this morning into five different sections. The first section is very simple. From the book of Romans, we learn something of the supply of God's love. Simply, the supply. Is there a limit to the supply of God's love? No, it is infinite. It is part of what God is. In verse 5 of our text, and I'd like to concentrate most of our remarks, at least initially, from this little verse. It's a generous supply. Notice what the text says. Because the love of God is shed abroad, it is poured out lavishly, unstintingly. It's got a great supply. It's a generous supply. There is no valid reason why believers' hearts should be shriveled up, dried, old, grumpy, discontented, flea-bitten heart. should never be the case. Because there is a tremendous supply, and it's a generous supply made available to us. The true Christian has tremendous potential to be demonstrations of the love of God to other saints, to the family, to one's family, to, to the unsaved, to those who need to know the grace of God by their own experience. How do we cultivate the love of God? Well, it is very simply this, by ingesting, by digesting, assimilating, living in the power of God's word. It is appropriating it into our innermost being, knowing what it says, and then simply obeying what God has said. Now, you may notice that this love of God, with its vast, infinite supply, is poured into our hearts. So it's God's love in us that is being poured through the vehicle of our hearts, through our lives. What a privilege it is. For such creatures as we are, with all of our imperfections, with all of our inherent sin nature, to be channels through which the love of God is to be poured through the paces of daily life. Now, it says in our text that it's poured into our hearts. It's not something that can be brushed off our head or our shoulder, but it's into our deepest, innermost being. And it's done by the Holy Spirit. He didn't splash any, he didn't lose any, but he did it appropriately and perfectly into our hearts. The supply of that love is not only generous, but secondly, it is also God-directed. It's the Holy Spirit who does this. Will he ever do an imperfect work? Will he ever say, oh, look, that's, that, I can't do that. Keep in mind in Job 33 and verse 4, it was the Holy Spirit who made man. He understands us. He knows what makes us tick. And he can do this job of pouring God's love into our hearts and do it perfectly and do it every time. He is always present, always alert to what is not only facing us today, but what is facing us on the road of life that's around the next bend that we can't see right now. 
And he's pouring out that love into our hearts, doing it properly. That supply is, in fact, generous. It is God-directed, and it's gracious. The third feature of that supply. Notice in verse 8 of our text, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it is a gracious supply. He did it for sinners. Not just some, but all sinners. We're all sinners, and he's no respecter of persons. He doesn't look at us differently than he does anybody else. And he commends that love. He makes it conspicuous, makes it public. He proves it towards us while we were his enemies, not while we were thanking him or cheering him on or begging him to do something, but while we were hostile to him, he made that love conspicuous. Such love in us should be seen and become evident as we go through the stages of life. The second division that I'd like you to consider with me, not only the supply of God's love, but the strength of his love, It's a powerful love. And as I was preparing for this, I I went thought back to the book of Ruth. And to think of how Ruth left her mother and father, left the grave of her husband, left her culture, her religion, and she was glued to Naomi and said, I'll lodge where you lodge and Your God will be my God, and where you die, I will die. That that sounds like there's a pretty strong love there. God's love is a strong, powerful love. And yet that love is able to be wounded. Though it is strong, it can be attacked. It can be discredited. It can be maligned. It can be misunderstood. We know from the Song of Solomon in chapter 8 and verse 7 that many waters cannot quench love. Can it be attacked, discredited, misunderstood? Yes, but it cannot be quenched. So it's a strong love. It's a love that evidences strength. Our love for the people of God evidence our salvation. Just turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, just for a moment. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. Which says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Just look at that again with me, just for a moment. If we liken this verse to a little lollipop, you can put it back in your mouth and just let it dissolve slowly. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. And love Baptists too, by the way. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. We could go back a chapter to chapter 2 and verse 15, where the opposite is presented. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. It's a strong love. In chapter 8 of Romans, in verse 28, it's a pervasive love. You might notice with me, in verse 28, he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them, and it's qualified now, to them that love God, to them who are the called, that's Kletos, invited, according to his purpose. It's a pervasive love. It is including all those who meet this qualification that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things. That's where I see the thought of being pervasive. All things. The things that we would choose if we had a choice and the things that we wouldn't choose if we did have a choice. All things work together for good, for what is intrinsically valuable, what is morally good, what is upright, what is to advantage. All areas of life are included in this comprehensive all. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. The strength of that love is pervasive to all people, all who meet these qualifications. And it's also permanent, a permanent love. You might just jump down a little bit in the chapter to verse 37 of Romans 8. He says, Nay, in all things, these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, now he lists 16 things that cannot separate us from the love of God, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us. That word separate is the same word that is sometimes translated divorce. Nothing can put us asunder from the love of God. So it's pervasive, it's all-encompassing, and it's permanent in that nothing can separate us from God's love. The third thing that we may glean from studying the 16 references to love in the book of Romans is the simplicity of that love. That love, God's love, was given to us not because we demanded it or merited it or because we had some kind of expectation for it, but it was given to us with simplicity. It was a simple love. The thing that I'd like you to notice is that love is discerning, and I see that in chapter 9 of Romans in verse 13, where he makes the statement, quoting from Malachi chapter 1, he says, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now that word hated is the term missio, and it means simply to love less. It wasn't that God looked at Jacob and said, you're a nice little guy, I kind of like you, and Esau, you're an ugly turkey. I don't like you. (laughs) Not at all. God, in the very last book of the Old Testament, in viewing the lives of these men and the nations that they represented, as we know from Genesis 25, 23, said to Jacob, I've loved him, but I haven't had that relationship with Esau. I've tried. 
But he's basically turned his nose up at me and looked the other way. He wouldn't respond. God's love is discerning. Now, we know Jacob wasn't exactly the best character. We know he was a deceiver. We know that he was contrary-minded. He was pretty self-focused. But at the same time, he was a man who wrestled with the pre-incarnate Jesus on the banks of the Jabbok River. He was willing to engage in that wrestle, wrestling match. He, at the same time, as a result of that experience, became a prince with God. His name was changed to Israel, a prince with God. God's love is simple in that it is discerning. It is a simplistic love. And it's a love that is dedicated. It is not only discerning, but it is dedicated. Just think of the long years that God was at work in Jacob's life. While he was a deceiver, and while he had his own experiences of being deceived, God was at work. God was patient through the years, the decades of time, to take this man who was by nature a deceiver and make him a prince with God. It was a dedicated love. And I see that in in Jacob in that at least he was willing to wrestle all night long. That sounds like a long wrestling bout. Wrestling without hearing a bell to say, okay, you've got to have a little break now, have a little drink and go at it again in a minute or two. All night long, a dedicated love. Fourth thing that I've noticed concerning love in the book of Romans is the sincerity of that love. In chapter 12 and in verse 9, God's love and the love that he expects to find in us is an undiluted love. In verse 9, he says, let love be without dissimulation, without hypocrisy. Don't water it down. Don't dilute it with hypocrisy. That's the kind of love God expects to find in you and me. It's his quality of love that is poured out lavishly into our hearts, not to be diluted, to be watered down or corrupted in any way. It is interesting that having gone through the the heavy doctrinal section of Romans, in speaking to them concerning their relationships one with another and the relationships of righteousness, he found it necessary to say to them, don't be hypocrites in the area of love. Is it possible for people to know all of the great doctrines in the first 11 chapters of Romans and yet to still need that exhortation, don't be hypocritical in your love one for the other and for the Lord? And the answer is yes, because little things can creep into people's lives that can bury or cover over that quality of love. Love will show itself, and notice in in the same verse as we continue to read, Abhor that which is evil. Have a holy hatred for what is evil. Cleave, be glued to that which is good. With the sincerity of an undiluted love, there will be a holy hatred for hypocrisy. 
for what is evil and a desire to be glued to what is right and good, to what is kind and gracious. The sincerity of God's love is to be undiluted, and secondly, it is to be unselfish. And I see that in verse 10, where he says, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. And I see in that an unselfish love that is to grace the lives of God's people. And finally, from the book of Romans, we may learn this about the love of God as we consider the service of love. Love is simply not a gooey, sticky, sentimental feeling. It is a dynamic. It is an engine that impels one to do that which is pleasing and most pleasing in God's sight. Concerning the service of of love, you may notice in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8 that it is constructive. It cannot just sit by idly. He says in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And then jumping down to verse 10, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It is constructive. It will do something and accomplish something, and it certainly works no harm, no bad side effects. So in the service of love, it is constructive, and then finally, it is concerned. It's a caring love. It is not in any way selfish or self-focused. Notice verse 9. He says, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this, saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It is a concerned love, concerned for others and their spiritual and eternal well-being. You may look at chapter 14 and verse 15, where we read this, But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, lovingly. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. It is a concerned love in that my brother or my sister's weakness is the measure by which I may exercise my own personal liberty. It's a concerned love. And then in verse 30 of chapter 15, we read this, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. It is a concerned love that will uphold one another in prayer. Concerned for the spiritual and temporal well-being of others as we consider the love of God and its supply, its vast. We might consider its strength. We might also consider its simplicity and its sincerity and its service. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful that in the context of a book that deals with so many of the great truths that you have revealed, that you have taken the time to address the issue of love. 
Help us to be the most godly, loving people that you can produce as you look at our lives, as you see our calling, as you see our latter end. Help us to be those through whom the love of God is poured out as we venture into the week before us and then the time that may lie ahead and until Jesus returns. And so we ask for your blessing and gracious working to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.